Suns fans, welcome to our post-season question and answer episode of Don the Stat. Uh, I'm Ian Hume and I'm, I'm joined not just by my co-host tonight, Jonathan Walsh, but also by a group of our Patreon subscribers to really dig into some of the burning questions regarding where Essendon finished up in 2023 and where we're headed in, in 2024. First, Jono, how are you doing? Yeah, good, mate. Lick my wounds and uh, starting to get over what happened the last couple of weeks of the season. And yeah, it's the the time this and footy club really comes alive recently, doesn't it? We're, we're moving into to trade week and draft talk. So uh, yeah, certainly very jealous of the eight teams playing finals this week. But um, yeah, otherwise, mate, I'm going pretty well. Yeah, some would say this is Essendon's final period, finals period of the trade period, which is a bit depressing. But, you know, hopefully that will change over the next few years. Look, we're going to get straight into it tonight. We do have uh, seven or eight of our Patreons who have joined us. So thanks so much for uh, taking the time out to come and share your questions and your thoughts with us. Um, we've got our first question lined up and it's from a friend of the show, Crooksy. Crooksy, who did a bonus episode with me a few months back. Um, I might link that in the in the description there if you want to go back and listen to his stories uh, about commentating the under-18 comp. But yeah, Crooksy, welcome to Don The Stat tonight. How are you doing? Uh, you're doing well, doing well. Looking forward to this. I couldn't attend uh, the last one, but I did listen to it, so it was um, it was terrific. Um, I've got a question just for all the Bomber Brains Trust there. I think um, one thing the Bombers haven't had in recent times is a generational player, and I know they don't grow on trees, and I suppose our last true generational player was Hurdy, and I went back and had a bit of a I did. I, I witnessed it. I saw it. But I went back to Hurd's start. He he wasn't picked seventy nine for no reason. So you know he's obviously a very very late draft pick. He only played three games in his first year. Uh, I think it was the last three games of ninety two. Ninety three. He had a good night series. And when I think we beat Richmond out at Verfell Park in front of a big crowd. His ninety three season was okay. But he was pretty injury prone, and he's tripped. In, he's he got his game in the finals, but he wasn't a superstar. So I, I just say that in is that he didn't blaze coming in all all guns blazing like a John Coleman kicking twelve goals in his first game, or a you know Paul Salmon or whatever. I want to know from people: is there anyone on our list? And I'm probably looking at the players that have been drafted in the last three years, who they see that could develop. With a big preseason into it as a generational player. Yeah, it's a good, good question. I, I think it probably depends on how people rate Zach Merritt and, and where they see him. I mean, he's clearly not James Hurd, but I think he's he's probably a player that's been underappreciated because we haven't been a good side. Uh, and, you know, maybe his individual results are also overinflated a little bit because we haven't been a good side. Uh, he hasn't had a lot of competition for best and fairest and things. Uh, Heard he also didn't play a game in his first year, did he? So he was drafted in, in 90. So he didn't play a game in 1991, uh, came into the side late 92. I think he might've debuted round one and then didn't play until late at the season. I still think, Archie Perkins has huge upside uh, if it clicks for him. Uh, I, I think he, he's someone who's going to need a really big preseason and take his fitness to another level. Uh, 
I know he's he's over holidaying in uh, in Spain at the moment. I think uh, I might see. I'm actually wandering over to, well, not wandering, heading to Barcelona on Monday. So um, yeah, might might see him on the streets and uh, and put the hard word on him. But yeah, I I still think he, he could elevate his game if he, if he can get himself really really fit and and just realise the talents that he's got. He he's one that I think could be a supreme talent and and have a really good career. Everyone that I've spoken to who uh, you know, is is in the know a little bit, and you know some some coaches and and ex coaches still believe that Zach Reed is going to be a hell of a player, and and is is the best of the three that we drafted, and at the, that point in time, that that obviously includes uh, Archie Perkins. So uh, yeah, if he can get his body right, I think the the news this week was that he'll be ready to go for the full preseason, which is exciting. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it's a bit of sight unseen for me. I haven't I haven't seen him play footy enough, so I'm I'm going off the uh, secondhand opinions. But yeah, I, I guess they're the two, and and then Elijah Sardis was our um, most recent early draft pick, uh, and then the other the other one to watch is uh, I've almost forgotten his name, Jaden Davy. Uh, obviously missed this year with uh, with a knee injury. I mean, small forwards, maybe other than maybe Cyril Rioli don't become generational players, but he, yeah, he he's touted at least by his family to be better than, than Alwyn. And, and we saw some really good signs from Alwyn Jr. this year. So yeah, I think that there's some talent there, but Archie's the one, if I was going to, uh, you know, single one out. Yeah. He, he'd be the one for me. Uh, Humi or, or anybody else got any, any thoughts? I, I kind of, sorry guys. Um, I kind of feel like, as you say, certain types of players and the, the part of the ground that they play in are, don't tend to end up being generational players. So you don't often have a def- like a, a key defender. You might get a full forward like a Lloydie. Um, you wouldn't get a forward pocket, as you say. Um, so based on that and plus another criteria, I reckon you're looking at current players who are still early in their career. If you look at a, a Lloydie and a Herd, for example, or even, even a Lucas, I think the key is they look really at home early on. Like they look super comfortable, and of the of the guys that I would say in the first two or three years currently, you'd have to be looking at Martin, obviously, and you'd probably look at Hobbs as well. Super, like just not flustered at all. Yeah, he's got his flaws, and you know he's needs to do a lot of work. But um, I'm just looking through the list on the web page, just look at other guys. But there's not many. It's too too early to call on Sardis, I guess, but. You know, there's a there's a lot of guys who I mean Ridley could go to another level, but do you know what I mean? Just yeah. with lo- looking right at home. I mean, you look at a Harry Jones. He's you know he, he reminds me of Hurdy in, in a way, but he just hasn't. I don't know. Mate, mate, he, he did have that one really good season, I guess. But so he's possibly another one, but there's not much else beyond, in my opinion, sort of like a Martin or a Hobbs who just look like and, and maybe a Menzi, but then he's not going to be generational. So. Yeah, I think you've got to have a lot of strings to your bow to be generational. I, I don't see Hobbs becoming generational. I mean, it's a really nebulous term, isn't it? I mean, if you think about the last, say, decade, Gary Ablett Jr., Buddy Franklin, uh, is Nat Fife generational? Probably. Um, Bontempelli, probably. Uh, Dustin Martin, Patrick Dangerfield, stand out. These sort of players that really can, can yeah, take games yeah. by the scruff of the neck and, and really drive it forward. Is Scott Pendlebury a generational player? Would you have him there, Matt? 
it's tough. I was going to say Cochin as well, Cochin and Pendlebury. Look, probably not. And yeah, I don't see Hobbs being better than either of those two. So yeah. And then you've got like you know, Luke Hodge was towards the end, but you know, great, great player, great captain, generational. Probably not. You know, Crips. you could be Crips. See, Crips will be an interesting one. So obviously. Unfortunately, Cartner in the finals this year and might do some damage. You know, do, do players be, only become generational if they start performing in finals? You know, John O mentioned Zach Merritt, and you know he's he's outstanding and you know easily you know, one of the top. Yeah, one of the no, oh, yeah, Doc. Well, that's not one of us unless he some miracle happens and he and he comes over to us. Um, but yeah, so you know, I think got to, a lot's going to go go right to to end up with a generational player. I mean, you probably would. You know, you look at arguably the best team over the last few years in, in Melbourne though, you know, is, is Gorn a generational player? Like he's probably the one Petrarca, maybe. Petrarca. Yeah. Petrarca's got the, the skills and the, and the talent and, and a lot of the, you know, the, the basics of what you would consider a generational player. Is, is he there yet? Maybe not. And I, it also probably is one of those things where you, you've got to get a lot right. And do you need a generational player to, to win a flag West coast? I'd argue didn't have one in 2018. Um, yeah. Hawthorne the last couple of years, once Buddy left, you know, that was just a, a really well-drilled, well-organized team. Uh, I don't necessarily think you have to have one in order to, to do that. I mean, even Geelong last year, yes, Dangerfield, I think we, we agree is, is one of those, those players, but he wasn't playing at that level last year. Again, that's just a really strong, good team. So. No, I, I don't think you need one either, to be honest. It would be, it'd be nice, but yeah. Well, that's that's why it's interesting. Like, would you sell the? Would you try and sell the farm to try and get Harley Reid? Like, that's the question. That's I guess that's where I'm not sure. That's where Crooksy was, was leading with his with his point. Uh-huh. But is that is that what you try and do? We got to work out too. Like a champion team always beats a team of champions. So yeah, choose what you want. The uh, yeah, Nick Martin was a name I didn't mention, which is a bit strange by me because I'm normally pretty happy to work Nick Martin into any conversation. Uh, Herdy debuted at 19 as as Nick Martin did, and uh, he Herdy kicked 30. I just looked it up. He kicked 31 goals in 16 games in 93. It, so it's not a bad scoreboard impact. Uh, played more as a forward, although it did end up at fullback on Ablett at, at one stage, didn't he? And then 94 is an interesting comparison. So as a 21 year old, he played. 20 games, he kicked 27 goals, played more in the midfield that year in a team that wasn't going as well. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see whether Nick Martin, I, I still believe, can make a really, really good inside midfielder. Uh, so if he does progress his game, uh, I think what we do know about him is he'll go and get himself fitter and stronger and have a really big preseason because he's, you know, he, he's shown that he's already done that and, and he's a, a really committed player. So look, he, He's probably not going to be James Hurd, but he could be the you know the player that elevates himself to to sort of take this team or, or this club to to better things. And and you know he's probably going to finish in the top five of our best and fairest, I imagine. And and he might be the one next year that can truly take the next step to be you know alongside Zach Merritt as our best player. Yeah, I I think that's that's fair. And you've pointed out that he's you know his midfield play is a you know, something that seems to become pretty naturally to him when he does go into the middle and he has been effective in the, the very limited opportunities he's had there. And you gener- other, other than your, your buddy Franklin's pretty much all the, the players you consider to be generational is someone who does get it done in the middle. 
Yeah, and uh, I think it was Matt made the point that those when we think of those generational talents, we think of players that uh, you know adapt to the level really quickly, which Nick Martin clearly did. Kick five on debut in, in a game where we were trounced, and and as and you know never looks rushed, never looks out of time. I think time is is an, an asset that the really good players have, don't they? You know, heard certainly had that. Uh, Pendlebury, we we touched on. Uh, has plenty of that, and, and Nick Martin's a player. Whether he's out in a wing and, and finding space, or he's in the contest, he's a player that has time. So, uh, so yeah, he's he's one, and yeah, hopefully, what he does off the field can can impact on um, on Archie Perkins, and, and he can elevate his fitness to that level and, and take his game to the next level, which probably segues quite well into the question I know Vince had lined up. Thanks, guys. And, um, you know, once again, thanks for what you do with respect to the pod. It's absolutely brilliant and I've really enjoyed being part of it and listening to you guys and, you know, driving home from work and catching up with your previews and it's just been fantastic. Great for our mental health and great for our club and uh, what we get together. Now, listen, the only other thing in terms of generational player is Dustin Fletcher, just from the longevity perspective, and I, and I say that because my kids who are all grown up as adults now, you know, the one player that across their sort of age ages of, you know, 10 or 12 years between all of them, that they sort of talk about and remember, and he's, he's always Fletch. And so I think that the durability side of things is a really important thing. And we, we seem to be getting, you know, players, um, John, you and I are talking about Devin Smith, you know, whose careers are cut short, um, you know, uh, less and less players playing 200 games um, for the club. And so that sort of generational or just longer longer life player um, is becoming rarer and rarer. So hopefully in the existing crop, and I, I say that, you know, with um, inverted commas because of, you know, obviously Reed and these blokes who have, Jones who have got some durability issues already, uh, wouldn't it be fabulous to see those guys, um, you know, put – um, 10 or 12 seasons together. Um, I have absolutely no doubt that those players and Perkins in particular um, will be one of those, that will be those sorts of players that go on forever. Anyway, in terms of my question, I don't want to sort of sound like the gossip hound, but, um, and, and I, and hear me, I, I take very seriously what you said at the beginning of the, of the pod. So I don't want to sort of um, go on about it too much in terms of too much detail, but, do we have some sort of off-field, uh, you know, behind-the-scenes culture problem? Is it a handful of players? You know, I'm a great fan of Jake Stringer. I had a chat to him at the only game I've managed to get to this year a couple of weeks back. He seemed very serious and very focused to me. He looked the fittest I've ever seen him, um, way fitter than any of us in the room. And, and you know, so... I don't know if there are individual players. There's a couple of nasty rumours going around about a couple of individual players that might have, you know, some some issues. I'm not interested in that. But is there something wider behind the scenes? Because I don't think there is. I just think there seems to be a lack of desire to win. And I've said this before in posts, but that to me seems to be the culture problem. And I thought it shifted a little bit until, you know, what we saw in the last um, few rounds. I actually thought that the desire to win and the sort of, you know, real um, spirit of having a go had improved this season until what we saw in terms of the sort of the drop-off in that last um, half dozen 
game. So look, I'm just interested in any any insights and whether you think we've actually got some sort of off-field culture problem or whether it is just, you know, the fact that we lost a whole bunch of players and we were, we were shit for a while. I mean, I'm not aware of any specific problems. I mean, I've, I've heard the same rumours you have and you take them with a grain of salt. And I imagine, look, the players probably get up to a lot of things that, that we don't really hear about. So I lived in Geelong for three years around the time that Geelong won the 2007 flag. And, you know, I was, I was, I was at uni and, you know, I was, I was living on campus and there were a lot of, um, you know, interactions between some of the the females on campus and, and Geelong players. And you would hear and see things about what was going on that never made the papers. And I mean, that's partly a Geelong thing where the, the Addy sort of runs a bit of a protection racket for the Geelong players, but you know, clubs, I think clubs are pretty good at keeping most of that sort of stuff out of the spotlight. So it's hard to know whether there is, but I guess the on-field, on-field results sort of play out that there is something wrong and it does sound like that Brad's given the players the hard word about what playing for the Essendon Football Club is going to evolve going forward. And, and that sounds like it includes what you're doing when you're away from the club. And my guess is there's going to be some players that will be monitored closely over the next year to see if they're living up to those ideals and, and are, are committed for success. And I, I'd say that those players that don't demonstrate that level, I expect it will be moved on and they'll be looking to bring in players that can achieve that level of personal commitment to success. And I, th- I guess just with what you sort of said about, you know, the will to win dropping away, I guess I, it's hard. Like, I guess it gets to a point in the season where the struggles just bring up the bad, bring the bad habits back. You know, it's easy. It's easy when you're trying to develop good habits, it's easy to do and maintain that when you're winning. And it's really hard when you start to lose. So when you have that, you go through that, you know, probably the Geelong and the, and the, and the Bulldogs game where I don't think there's much we could have done in that second Geelong game, even if we were playing at our best to, you know, get that much that much closer. Just the the way Geelong played that night and the and the, and the ground itself really limited our our game style there. So I, I think that, that was always down for the loss. The Bulldogs always usually have the wood on us. So I think that that allows the bad habits to start coming back into it, and then it sort of falls away because those those habits aren't ingrained, and that's going to take time. So. That's yeah. I'm not sure. Hopefully, that satisfies your question, John. Have you got anything to add on that? Yeah, I think winning fixes a lot of problems, doesn't it? And when you when you're not winning, you you look for excuses. And uh, uh, Richmond 2020. Remember, there was the Sydney Stack and Callum Coleman Jones kebab incident where they got in trouble. Now Richmond went on and won the flag, and and no one's saying there's a cultural problem at Richmond, uh, but the fact is they still had plenty of off-field issues with players. You know, Dusty had his his moments and run-ins as well. One thing that that Richmond certainly did is they got rid of guys that weren't behaving and, and weren't doing the right thing, and and perhaps we've just had a bit of an attitude of, of being a bit nicer about it and keeping guys who who weren't. Um, who you know who weren't doing the right thing or, or weren't putting the work in so maybe that's going to be the cultural shift that we see now i, I think you know young guys who, who are getting paid a lot of money there's always going to be some that that don't you know adhere to team rules and and party a bit more than they should and and you know maybe we just haven't done a good enough job of spitting them out at the back end like like perhaps we have in the past or like a club like richmond has and and we've just tolerated it and, and maybe that was just brad's way of of saying that you know we won't tolerate it um, you know, my way or the highway now, shape up or ship out. So, yeah, I think, you know, I think there's there's probably a problem there already and at least now it's it's on the table and and sounds like the club's pretty clear on on what it's going to take to be an Essendon player going forward. 
Yeah, Vince, I was going to say, mate, too, is I wonder if it's – and I felt you there too when you said will to win because that's what it felt like, um, lack of. But I wonder if it's more just at the club and the players, given that it's a young list and none of them are actually, you know, seen success, you know, on a – on any sort of level that, you know, outside of about four or five week period, you know, at a time. So I wonder whether it comes back to they have a bad loss and just that confidence that, you know, might come through two or three years of, you know, sustained, you know, a degree of success um, just isn't there in a lot of them. And they just drop, drop their bundle very easily. That's what it sort of feels like sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it looks like that. You can see it in their in their physical demeanour on on the on the uh, ground where they just drop their shoulders, drop their heads. I was screaming my head off uh, head off at them at the West Coast game. You know, like um, lift your heads because you could physically see them dropping their heads um, as as West Coast came back. You know, Tim Kelly was awesome that night. He was unstoppable, and um, you know the the blokes were just sort of walking around with their heads down. Um, but um, yeah. It doesn't take it much. It's a, yeah. it's a combination. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. And, and, oh, sorry. Look, the only other thing, and it'll probably come up later in another question, but I'll forget it. But uh, I, I kind of wonder too whether we've um, we went into this season very much, and I think Merritt talked about it on the couch right at the start of the season. He said we haven't really developed or you know trained our offense, and I wonder it looked a lot at, in games where we. Look, look to be in it and then slipped away in games badly where teams just pretty much took away our, you know, our cash cow and, and we went, oh, well, okay, well, there's no plan B. And then that's, you know, everyone dropped their bundles from there. So that's what it sort of felt like too. It's it a combination of those things for me. But anyway, we'll see what everyone else thinks later. Just one thing I'd like to add going from in the early 60s, the original Baby Bombers when um, – Tim and Vander and Merv and Roger and all those joined in 77. Around that, if you go back to those seasons, and Bill Stephen was coach and Barry Davis, I'm sure 76, 77 and 78, they had, Essendon had a drop-off for the last five or six games. So they, they were mixing it quite well and they were either in the five or there or thereabouts and then were losing the last five or six games of the season. So I know how that story ended which was good. So maybe it's just a group of young players, a nucleus of young of young talent getting together and just finding that the, the ongoing season just a bit tough. I don't know. I think that's, that's but, pretty important to note too. Like it feels like a bit of an excuse, but we're also we're the fifth youngest team in the league across the year. So like there's still mm. a lot of development to be, uh, to learn how to sustain success over a full season. Because like, AFL is a lot different than the state leagues. So there's just a lot to learn still. Yeah. The, the bodies aren't quite as seasoned and just to, yeah. And you only have to drop off three or 4% and the opposition just jumps all over you. They just take the advantage, I think. So it, it's very hard to witness. It's very hard to watch. It's very hard to stomach. But it, um, yeah, sometimes it, in hindsight, it might all be part of the just another chapter. Yeah, yeah. I think that's where the hope and and faith element comes into it, isn't it? Where where you just hope that they are genuine factors from the outside looking in. And 
uh, and and put faith in the leadership that we've now got in the club that they're going to steer us through. I, I still think it's probably where we we lack some on-field leadership and, and you know, Zach has done a good job as our captain but doesn't really have too many lieutenants that have, have been there and, and done that. Uh, I know there's a little bit of talk that, that we might be looking at, at Goldstein. I'm not sure he on his own would necessarily fix that and, and would only be a, a, you know, a break glass in case of emergency player anyway, but it's the, you know, the Hodge to, to and then virtual to Brisbane sort of model, isn't it? Where uh, players that have been there and, and done that and been around successful squads. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if any of those are necessarily in the market this year, but, but that might be something Scott Lysette might be a, a better one to look at potentially than, um, than someone like, like Goldstein, I think that the point on on average list or, or average age of list is a is an interesting one because on a on a typical game day, there's not that much difference between you know most clubs are around about 25, 26. Uh, but where I do think it hurt us was when we did have those injuries in the in the back half of the season. I think we missed a bit of an opportunity to rotate our squad a bit more in the first sort of two thirds of the year. We we probably didn't expose enough players. We didn't rest. Caldwell, who never played a full season before, and then he got injured right at the end. We didn't rest Perkins, who who ended up playing every game, but clearly fatigued as the year went on. Uh, the only player we really sort of rested or managed was Menzi. So I think we missed a little bit of a trick there. You know, Hobbs, I think maybe missed round one, didn't he? And then played round two in the VFL and then came in on Anzac Day and played every game, I think, from memory. So, yeah, I, I think we, we went out list was healthy we we didn't do a good job of rotating it and then once we did get some injuries and you know we finished the year without Ridley without Stringer without Draper without Caldwell uh I'm sure I've missed a couple um we just didn't have the depth because then we are replacing them with you know with genuine kids so uh yeah I, I think that that all played into yeah how the season finished off but yeah ultimately you need to be better than coughing up 130 point losses uh and yeah still a fair bit of work to do yeah. Um, look, I'm going to chuck to Craig. Craig, you had a question you wanted to ask? Yeah, so my question was about our system and game plan. It seems that we get a new coach in that tries to, you know, introduce a new game style and game plan that we can't seem to understand or work out or just learn how to play for a a sustained period of time is that due to is that a coaching issue or a talent issue or an IQ issue because it feels like you know under truck he tried to instill a game plan the players said they were confused couldn't understand it Brad the second half of the year tried to bring in a new game style at least tweak our game style to be more of a forward press game style to get more turnovers up the ground as opposed to in our deep 50, but we didn't seem to be able to get that right. Is that just something that will take time to build and learn or is that a talent issue or is that how it was coached previously? Like what's, what do you think the issue is when it comes to learning new systems and developing that within the players? Yeah, it, it's hard to talk to what Truck's game plan was, isn't it? Because you know, obviously on the outside looking in and, and there's been enough players say that they, they struggled to understand it. Yeah. And maybe that is partly on the, on the, um, on the playing group, but 
you know, we we don't know how good a communicator uh, Rutten was. I, I think one thing that the truck would have most definitely struggled with is he didn't have a lot of the right support around him. I, I, I just don't think we had the the depth in in you know development coaches to to make sure that any game plan was solidified. I I do think that. Brad's, I don't think Brad Scott changed a lot. I, this is just a theory, but I, I, I think what he did do was just simplify things and get us to focus on a defensive structure early in the season that was less about where that happened on the ground and more just making sure that that was in place, that, that behind the ball we were set up to be able to defend better than what we were. And I think that's why we saw that sort of retreat thing, sort of situation happen. We had a really solid back six. We backed ourselves to win one-on-ones. And, and, you know, we, we did a reasonable job. And I think after about round 10, we started to see that move up the ground a little bit more. Uh, we also started to win a bit more contested ball, which helped, which means, you know, the value of contested ball means you, you know, if you should be taking territory and that, that affords you the ability to defend higher up the ground rather than retreating into your back 50. And just some, some very, very baseline measures in, in the first uh, 10 games of the season, we went inside 50, 52 times a game and conceded 58.5. So, uh, you know, that that's we weren't going inside 50 enough and, and we were certainly concede, conceding way too many inside 50s to have a, a sustainable model going forward. We were conceding 86 points a game, which I think was down from, I can't remember what it was last year, but it was 96 or 97 from memory. So that, you know, there was, there was a real improvement in, uh, um, points against, but not necessarily, and well, also, uh, you know, stopping the opposition from scoring, but not necessarily from preventing the opposition from going inside 50. Between rounds 11 to 17, I do think that, well, firstly, we improved our contested ball rate and then we were able to get more territory. Funnily enough, though, we weren't able to get the ball inside 50 more, uh, but we also reduced the, the number of times opposition went inside 50. So opposition entries reduced from 58.5 down to 53.4. So what's that, five a game? And opposition scores reduced from 86 to 76, which is you know a pretty competitive defense. If you're able to concede 76 points across the season, you're going to have a pretty good good season and, and win a lot more games than you lose. It, uh, granted, it's only a small window, but it, it's certainly an improvement. I still think there's clearly a way to go. We need to be able to reduce that further. Brisbane were ranked number one for opposition inside 50s at 48. 53 a game would rank you at sort of 10th or 11th. So there's still a little bit of work to do there, uh, but I think it got better. And then, of course, we have the challenge of being able to to maintain that for 23 games in a season and not just a, you know, a six or seven week block. So I, to get back to your question, I, I think it's a number of things, mate. I I think it's a a coaching group and that includes development coaches working with a group of players for longer. One year is not enough to fix all of the problems that we had. I do think it's a level of talent and personnel. I, I don't think we have enough players on our list that are instinctively defensive. I think uh, we have players who, who, um, who will put in an effort if the ball is in their area, but won't necessarily go and and sacrifice their own game for the greater good and and go and you know fill space or close space down instinctively. Uh, so I think we need a little bit more of that. And then I think there's there's also obviously an element of um, 
uh, of just experience and hardened bodies and, and guys being able to do it for longer. I think, you know, Nick Martin's going to be a much better player when he's played another 20 games. So is Archie Perkins, so is Caldwell, so is Hobbs. So, yeah, I think we, we just need another season or two under this coaching group and this development group for them to be able to to display some of the things that we saw in that middle third of the year where I do think we were defending a lot better. Uh, yeah. To extrapolate that out over a full season. Yeah. I just want to add some, some context to that. We had um, a friend of the show, Gail um, actually asked a pretty similar question to what you did, Craig. Um, and I, I was looking, I, I like to use this comparison a lot because I think culturally we're coming from a similar spot to what Melbourne were um, when they, when they made their big changes. Um and I, I think it's a, it demonstrates how long it can take to get this process right. I think we're probably a bit advanced of where Melbourne were when, when Roos came in. But, you know, prior to Roos coming in, Melbourne conceded 122 points per game the year before. Um, so last year, as sort of John has said, we were 95 points against. So we were ahead of where uh, Melbourne were when they made their uh, big coaching change. So in his first year, Roos got the Melbourne points down to 89 in the first year, and ours is basically the same from last year after the last couple of rounds. It was a bit better before the, the last couple of disasters. Now, over the, the following three years for Melbourne, their score against remains relatively the same. And now it does drop down to 79.5 when Melbourne make the prelim, but jumps back up to 91 the following year. If you then ignore 2020 because it's it's an off year in terms of the, the length of time and, and the, the length of the quarters, um, it's not until 2021 that Melbourne get their defensive patterns right and that they average 65 points against it and, and they go on to win the flag there. So that's a seven-year process. I don't think we're coming from quite as far back as Melbourne. Um, and it's also about getting the right personnel in it and getting them to buy in. But if you think about their key midfield, so Oliver, Petrarca, Viney, Brayshaw and Gorn, they're basically there for that that entire period. So Petrarca comes in at 2014, Oliver 2015, I think, and I can't remember when Brayshaw came in, but Finey and Gorn were there prior to that. So it took, you know, a good five, six, seven years for those players to develop their defensive uh, game to the point where Melbourne was a, a premiership threat. Um, but it does show that it can be taught, you know, players like Oliver and Petrarca and the like, they're, and Viney, when he came in there, see ball, get ball, you know, Viney was a good tackler, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean you're good at playing in a defensive structure. So it can become a long-term process before you start doing those defensive movements and, and that sacrificial stuff that Jono talked about innately. And I know that's depressing for Essendon fans to think it may be five, six, seven years before we get, you know, a, a team together that, that can be strong enough defensively to challenge for a premiership. But that's probably what it takes, especially when you are coming from, you know, a culture where, as Jono said, we don't really do it instinctively. No, and that's the thing, the club, it's going to take forever, not forever, but it's going to take a while for the club to to get everything in order for us to start contending. And and the club has been steadfast in telling everyone, you know, it's not going to be a quick fix. We're not going to do any more sugar hits. It's not going to, we're not going to rush this. We're going to be patient and do it right. And I think if we do that, we will get it right. Brad is the right coach. Craig Bozzo is the right CEO. We've got the right president. So I think we've got all the right people in place to to keep on the right path to get us there. As I said, as I said a few times, it's it's going to take time. It's yeah. it's going to require. And this is this is what happened with Rutten. They they panicked. They got rid of him. You know, arguable whether or not he should have stayed. Um, but 
I don't think anyone would say that he got a, a fair go at it um, in terms of being able to, to build something. So, yeah, whatever. And I, I guess Brad Scott's got more of the authority to see out any any ups and downs there and hopefully can, you know, get us to that point where we are that that strong side that can um, that can be successful. Thanks for your question, Craig. We've got uh, Matt up next with his question. He's had a few contributions tonight already, but this is his first question. Matt, let's hear it. Yeah, well, this is probably going to ruffle a few feathers after your comments there, guys. But I'm just curious, actually, to see whether I've got any uh, any mates on this one. But um, in brief, the question is, why can't Essendon give it a shake next year? Now, the background to this is that uh, best mate and I, He's a Richmond supporter, which is which is actually handy because you, you get to talk about things from both perspectives. And you know, and I, I sort of watch a, bit, a few Richmond games. He watches a lot of Essendon games, and we have the opinion that um, the lists across the board are really pretty pretty even across the whole comp. Yes, you can have teams like we talked about earlier. Someone mentioned you know generational players, and and admittedly, you know, and it, my, my mate will say, yeah, okay, well, we've had Dusty, we've had. I don't know if you want to throw Jack in there or, or whatever, but, you know, they've had their four or five guys who you can kind of rely on most weeks. Now, we, we probably don't have that handful of players y- yet, but he's still of the opinion, as as I always have been, and probably come across this theory in the last maybe five to ten years where t- a lot of teams, and West Coast is a classic example. Collingwood's done it a few times. Um, there are, I think, Melbourne or Adelaide perhaps did it once as well. Teams are, it's very common for teams to jump from bottom four to prelims. Like, I don't know the stats, you guys probably have them there. And in fact, I asked one of the, I think it's Anth on uh, Twitter to, if you could bring those stats up. But yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think personally, if you've got the, the right coach coaching the right system, giving the players enough confidence to execute, then I, I think it's a less about list and I, I really don't buy into all this talk about, you know, and I appreciate that, you know, McRae came in and Collingwood flew up the ladder. They did exactly what I just said, but, and I'm also aware that they three or four years older on average and they have a ton more experience. So yeah, there's a caveat there, but I'm curious to see what other people think because I've, I've just seen it happen so many times with other clubs. And, and as we say, with West Coast, that constantly bouncing from top of the ladder to bottom of the ladder and almost never in the middle. So I'm just curious if people have reasons why they think um, under the right circumstances and with a bit of luck, obviously with injury, um, you know, why we can't finish sort of top six. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think the thing that makes it hard for a lot of us to dream that dream is what happened in the last couple of weeks of the season, isn't it? And um, it, it is hard to, to put that behind us. Just want to quickly go back to to Humi's point on Melbourne, and and then dig into to your question, Matt. Uh, under Paul Ruse, at the end of Paul Ruse's first year, Melbourne delisted seven players. So they they did a, and that doesn't include retirement. So they they culled a, a big number of players from their list. It, it it will be interesting to see how much further we we do or don't go. Um, a lot might depend on on what happens with the likes of McKay and, and a couple of the other guys. We're, we're clearly in the market having a chat to. Um, Matt, to your uh, your point, I know I know people will point to the soft draw that we had, but 
you you know we, you're right we we got to 15th uh sorry fifth on the ladder at the end of round 17 wasn't it so you know yeah, 16 yeah. games into our season is a fair whack and and that was nothing to do with a draw because we hadn't played uh north melbourne and west coast twice by that point we'd, we'd only played them the once and i think the only team that we had played twice by then was port maybe uh who yeah. who were obviously in the top four of the ladder uh, I, I saw some data today by footy charts or i think footy underscore charts is the uh the uh twitter handle and and i oh know he he's a listener and he's an Essendon fan so g'day if he's listening in the the percentage as in um uh, you know ladder percentage of the top four teams has declined every year over the last four years and and it's uh, you know, this year was at a, a low equal to 2019 or, or slightly above 2019. So, uh, you know, the, the top four aren't as far above everybody else. Uh, and then the teams that were ranked ninth to 14th were closer to the teams that were ranked in the top four in terms of percent average percentage than um, than ever before as well. So, uh, and, and even the percentage of the bottom four teams increased this year on last, and that's despite, you know, West Coast being as bad as they were and, and North Melbourne only winning a couple of games. So, yeah, the, the data most definitely suggests that that the season or, or the lists are, are closer than they've they've ever been, and and not that much separates, you know, the best teams to to the rest. Uh, Port Adelaide were the one this year, didn't they? They they didn't make the finals last year and have now dropped into the top four. So I think there is a stat out there that you know for the last X number of years, the teams drop from or jump from outside the the top eight to to finish in the top four. So yeah, I mean, there's no reason if we got a really good run with injury and we're able to to sustain some of that form that we yeah we we could set up next year with a, a and have a, a really good season and, and go on and win a final i i do think that the makeup of our list does mean that we're going to need to have more luck than most in terms of our injury profile to be able to do something like that just because we don't have the depth in senior talent to be able to cover some of the injuries that we saw and and we we are reliant on on some guys like you know Ridley we, you know we, we don't have another player that can cover him uh and you know there's a few others um you know Nick Bryan's not going to be ready to to take on the workload that Draper is at the, at the moment and uh, yeah, so we're vulnerable in a few positions. But, yeah, I, I certainly don't subscribe to the doom and gloom and it's going to take forever. Uh, but, yeah, there's still a hell of a lot of work to do. Do you think we'll have the game plan ready to go by next year to push if that's what we think we can do or that'll take time? Uh, I think it will be better and I think we should expect – and, and want to improve. I, I know there'll be some theories that, that we need to go backwards to go forwards and whatnot, but we're not losing talent that, you know, we're, we're making some delistings to our list of guys that, that really didn't have an impact this year. I know Andrew Phillips played some, some good footy and uh, I don't know, we've got his number one fan on tonight as well. Um, is that an Andrew Phillips badge on your scarf there, Vince? But um uh, but yeah, we, we you know we we haven't fundamentally we haven't lost anyone who had a significant impact. Even if Sir Thatcher does go to Port Adelaide, I don't think he's a player who's irreplaceable. And and we should just get better through virtue of having Touchwood Ridley for you know twenty odd games and and you know the games we got into Hobbs and Caldwell and Perkins and and those guys this year. So uh, yeah, I 
Craig, I reckon, mate, I agree with you. I reckon if we, if it comes to sort of round three or four or five and um, we look like we're only got, we've still got no plan B and, you know, teams take away the corridor and we start bombing it down the line and, you know, can't even get an, an entry inside 50, well, that'll be super disappointing. I mean, you know, arguably he did have, Scott did have all of um, last preseason. I mean, he didn't have a say on the list, but he had, he had three or four months to get the game plan and he's going to have another three or four months. And if there's no plan B by by April or May, well, uh, it's not going to be looking good. I think, sorry, I know Vince, you want to say something, but I'll, I'll just jump in there. I think you have to also remember that the personnel plays a part in, in what you can execute. And you, you talk about plan B and, you know, if we, the corridor is taken away, you've, you've got to go long down the line. We didn't have the players that could affect, you know, contests down the line that, that other teams do. So obviously Wright was out for the first half of the year and that's something he did pretty well last year, being a target down the line. And even when he came back, he, he wasn't that sort of player. Wiedemann did it okay. And uh, there's some really good data out there that suggests that we were a lot more effective with him in the side, even if he wasn't, you know, dominating on the stat sheet. Uh, even earlier in the season, Harry Jones, you know, again, not dominating on the stat sheet, but providing that that structure that, you know, at the very least he was going to provide a contest down the line and, and then you could either, you know, win win the ground ball or create a stoppage and, and get the start again. And as the season progressed, we just didn't have the players that could do that. And you, you'd hope that, um, and you would hope that that could uh, be fixed with, with personnel and, and, and players getting fit. And being able being able to do that, so I think that also comes down to who you have on the field. Jono sort of mentioned that with losing players like Ridley and the like. Vince, you've been waiting patiently. I'll, I'll, I'll jump to you. Um, the Melbourne comparison, Hume, very interesting. Um, but you know they went and got Lever, they went and got May. Um, you know, I think that's really important to look at um, their progression. We haven't got those big monsters. We need one. Um, yeah, maybe it's Reed um, down the track if he can get his body right. Um, I noticed one of the guys um, just said Cox on a wing. Maybe it's Cox into the back line. I didn't mind that move. Um, the other point that um, Jono was making and to Craig um, or Matt's point before about is it the list? Do we have the you know? Do, do we have enough on the list? We do. But the point is that other teams like Brisbane and Collingwood are doing what Jono was saying. You know, players are going to places. Uh, they're, they're playing a, a different type of game to what we're playing. We have got too many players that either get sucked into the ball and then that's it, um, and they don't make a second or third effort, or they go where they think the ball's going to be. Um, they they look like they're lazy, but they're not lazy, maybe. I don't know. They look like they're jogging. I'm not sure. You know, it, it just looks like... Uh, Brisbane and Collingwood, uh, the, the ones that come straight to mind in Melbourne, just play a much harder and a much uh, more putting themselves into the other positions on the ground than our guys do. So I don't think we've got the system right yet. I do think we've got the talent to do it, along with a couple of judicious trades or buy-ins or picks and getting those blokes back. We were definitely better with Jones in the team, much better. Um, the first half of the, the season showed us that with the right players in the right places and everyone fit and everyone firing, we can do it. Um, but, you know, the second half, we didn't have those key players. They all disappeared. We lost the, that sort of structure and 
fitness or whatever, and off off we dropped. And as you said earlier, two or three percent drop off, and and you're gone. So I do think we do have have the list, and we do have the players that we need. We're certainly not playing the type of football that we need to play to win finals and to win keep winning games. We've got to try harder, and there has to be more repeat efforts. I just think it's absolutely. Um, plain as the nose on my face when I got to the ground this year to see what some teams are doing and what we're not doing. Yeah, it, it's a good point. I, I'm not a. I mean, teams do have different approaches, and and they'll they'll fall to different things if if one thing's not working. But generally, most teams have a game style that they try and and execute, and then. Uh, you know, take that up to the opposition and and you know back back themselves in to play their best type of football. I, I don't think there are a lot of plan Bs and Cs as such in in modern footy. Uh, uh, you know, Collingwood dropped away because teams took what they're really strong at and and worked that out. And 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 now Collingwood's, uh, uh, you know, Collingwood uh, have the. Uh, the the battle, I guess, or 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 will be working on how they can you know up the ante to to work through that. You know, Melbourne fans and I I know a couple of them are, are critical on Simon Goodwin because he doesn't have a, a plan B, but he he's so confident in their plan A and and believes that if their players execute that 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 they'll be able to win games. Uh, and you know, it, it, Brisbane play a certain way as well, and Port Adelaide play a completely different way to them. So I, I don't think it's so much about having different plans. I think it's just being able to continue to execute that plan under pressure for longer and also having a, a work rate which comes with partly capabilities, partly experience that allows you to execute that for longer as well. And I, I don't think our drop-off was because necessarily just because teams took it away. I think it's because we allowed them to take it away from us uh, and not having the likes of Ridley uh, there hurt that and, and Draper and, and and so on and so forth, but just also because we we purely didn't work hard enough uh, in the in the back end of the season, and um, and yeah, we we really dropped away. And 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 you know, just some metrics on on that in the last seven weeks of the season, contested possession differential. So they, these are all metrics that I think. I mean, it's you know, we don't see GPS numbers, we don't see um, you know how far people are running and and all of that kind of stuff. But over the last seven games compared to the the stretch of seven games before that contested possession dropped from plus three in rounds 11 to 17 to minus 6.6 in the last seven weeks. Uh, so, you know, we probably besides Darcy Parrish, we didn't have a lot of guys winning high numbers of, of contested ball, uncontested possession, which really does show your ability to work into space and to spread from contests, but also your ability to shut down the opposition our uncontested possession differential dropped from 27.7 to so positive, so plus 27 to minus 14, which is a massive, massive turnaround in the last seven weeks. Our opponents were taking five more marks a game, but three less contested marks, which is you know staggering. We we just weren't making our op- our opponents have to work hard enough. Inside 50 tackles dropped from 13 a game to nine, uh, and we weren't we, we were getting the ball inside 50 the same amount, or, or I think it was one less a game. We just weren't working hard enough to keep it in. We took four less marks inside our own 50 and allowed our opponents to take four more. Uh, so. Yeah, we we just completely dropped away in in work rate and effort, and I think there are lots of different reasons for that, and we'd be guessing at some, and and can probably see the others, but I, I think it's 
it's less about having a plan B and, and more about, um, uh, you know, us working harder to not allow our opponents to take away the things from us that we're trying to achieve in a game of footy. Yeah. Craig, you've got a question? I think with that, just quickly, um, a lot of it's to do old habits die hard. And I think once we fall into bad habits, they just continue and continue for a period of time. We need to learn to sort of snap out of it quicker. And it'll come with experience and winning more games of footy and getting a lot of cohesion in the way we play. But if we do drop off, it's not a big drop off like it always has been. Um, my question was, is there stats or metrics that you would look at to go, okay, this is what I'd like to see or how I can sort of tell that we're improving and we're getting towards that more finals system, more finals game style that we want to get to? Is it like certain metrics that you look at and go, okay, yeah, we're doing this right, we're doing that right. That compares well to Collingwood, Melbourne, Brisbane, that sort of thing. So I think probably the ones that, that stick out, scores against, you know, you're not you're not winning the flag unless you're a top four defence, top five defence if, you, if you're lucky. So that's part of it. I think if you're looking at individual stats, the, the one that really stands out to me, and, and this has been pretty consistent over the years, is that if you're not top four for intercept differential in terms of generating more intercepts than your opponent, you're not win the flag and that and that really shows you a quality setup because you, you're only generating more intercepts in your opponent if a your setup is good enough to, to limit their ability to move the ball and, and allow you to win it back and b you're performing well enough with your skills that you're not giving the opposition uh, a chance to, to take the ball back off you so if you're getting generating a lot more intercepts than you're giving away then that's that's a suggestion that your system is working and that your players have bought in so if you're wanting one metric to really focus on, um, it would be our intercept differential. Like if you track that across the year, you get a good sense of, of where we're at if we're actually, you know, building something that's sustainable. Perfect. Yeah, we we were 14th for intercept differential this year. And where did we finish on the ladder again? 11th. Um, so what's interesting in, in that, Hume, is Collingwood – finished on the top of the ladder, as we know, and are 11th in the AFL for intercept differential. And um, and Melbourne finished first um, in intercept differential. So, you know, the, the team who is the best across the whole season versus the team who uh, out of the eight teams remaining is the worst will we'll play each other tomorrow night. So it'll be interesting to see what role that has in the game. Um, uh, Giants second, Richmond third who didn't make the finals and St Kilda fourth mm. so only one top oh, Sydney were, were fifth so only one top four team uh, are, are in the top uh, four for intercept differential across the season and it was the point I made last week on on the show that footy has changed uh, I think a lot of the focus that uh, that champion data puts on uh, is uh, sort of tracks what's happened in, in years gone by I, I do think Intercept differential is a really important metric, and Hume is right. It, it, it's your ability to to win the ball off your opposition more frequently than than they're able to win it back off you. Uh, but everything else that's wrapped around it, like Brisbane, had the least number of tackles uh, across the the season, and and you know we we often associate tackles with work rate. You know they they rank twelfth. Sorry, so they're they're actually below Collingwood, uh, Brisbane. Uh, 
a 12th uh, um, intercept differential. So, yeah, the, the game has, has certainly changed. But I think uh, what's probably as important as intercepts is where they're happening on the ground. So what, you know, whilst Brisbane don't have a lot of intercepts, what they are really good at is um, is their ability to be able to intercept higher up the ground and then score from those turnovers. So I think for, for me, the, the one that I want to continue to dig into uh, next year is is where uh, is our intercept differential as a whole, where on the ground those intercepts are, are happening and then our ability to to score from them. Do you think not having Ridley in the side um, hurt that? Yeah, he, he's our. I know uh, Andrew McGrath is our vice captain, and, and I know Dyson Heppel is our former captain. But uh, Ridley really is the leader of that backline. He's he's the key linchpin in in how we set up, and and the rest of our defenders set up around him. And you know, you uh, if you look at our list composition for for this year, you could you know you can replace Laverdo with Baldwin and, and get a decent outcome, or, or Baldwin Zerk Thatcher with Baldwin if that was needed, and and we might have been okay. But replacing Jordan Ridley with Nick Cox, um, uh, you know, and, and I still have a lot of confidence in Nick Cox developing into a really good footballer. That that's a big drop off in terms of experience and capability. So uh, yeah, I think um, uh, he's one player that that we really need to play twenty two games next or twenty three games next year for us to to you know improve on the the win loss that we had this year. Do you think with a healthy list, with more sorry, with more of the healthy list, we could play more of Cox up the ground as sort of that intercept defender or intercept when the ball's kicked out from the opposition? Do we that sort of play so we can intercept further up the ground or Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think the reality is if if we have a really healthy list, Nick Cox probably plays a fair bit of VFL next year and and that's okay. I think uh, you know that there's no problems with with any young player, particularly a, a guy who's two hundred centimeters tall playing a fair bit of VFL footy. Uh we need to um yeah, we, we need to continue to develop them in that program. But yeah, I I still maintain that Nick Cox's biggest strength is his versatility, and that and that we should just use him in in a multitude of, of different roles. I'd, I'd actually like to see him play on the ball a little bit more as well, and and be used as a as a ruckman at times too. But um, but yeah, I, I think he's he's one that just needs to play games at, at any level, and and he'll continue to develop and get better. Just touching on that um, game plan stuff we mentioned before, I'm just curious what everyone thinks Essendon's, um, you know, go-to plan A is. Like, where where do we think our strengths lie? I mean, you know, some teams, you know, have got the, the big gun, full fo- the key forwards. Um, uh, uh, Brisbane's got a mid-stack midfield. I mean, if we if we had to put our coach's hat on, what what would we be looking at, you know, in terms of our, our best 22 and saying, yeah, this is how we need to play? I mean, other than, you know, obviously contested ball and all that sort of stuff. I think if you go on the season just gone, our, our, our one wood is moving the ball from D50 to forward 50. Um, when we were able to do that, we were the best of the comp in doing that. Um, even up there with Collingwood, which which is kind of their their main game style, or particularly the year before, actually, they've, they've sort of adapted a bit this year. But that was so easily taken away. We saw that play out over the part the last bit of the year. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a risky game style. And uh, John, I sort of touched on it a bit before with with where the metrics of, of Collingwood and Brisbane, if it, 
Mel- Melbourne is sort of the, the prototypical premier of, of what premiers have looked like over the past, um, the past say dozen years. If Melbourne don't win the flag, and, and Jono sort of touched on this last week, and it's a Collingwood or a Brisbane playing a, a very different game style, we may see that, you know, the style that you need to, to play to win a premiership changes completely. And we might actually be in some way set up set up for that if it's, say, a Collingwood style where you're playing from the back. Um, you know, yeah. we might actually be set up to, to do well in that in that um, zeitgeist. So, you know, you've just got to see where, where, where the game goes. Mm. That's promising. I like the sound of it. That involves calling win the flag, though. I don't know if we could live in that, <laughs> a world like that. Well, I mean, Brisbane aren't too different to to Collingwood's profile. Uh, what they do have that that Collingwood don't, and and we probably don't, is uh, is that depth in in forwards and and goal kickers. They, you know, every time you play Brisbane, you 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 do have a genuine headache working out who's going to play on who. You know, Charlie Cameron is obviously a massive threat, and then uh, you know they've got guys like. Um, like Bailey and uh, McCarthy and and those guys that can kick goals on you. So they've got tools and smalls that can kick goals, whereas the the Pies, uh, you know, rely on their structure probably more than talent in their forward line to be able to to kick goals. But I I actually think our forward of the ball structure, when we've got everybody available, is it works really well too. And we saw that early in the year. Uh, you know, we were we had a lot more space in our forward line to work into because we had a, a forward line that functioned on uh, working for one another. Jake Stringer became a a really good team player, uh, but that sort of fell apart a little bit when we we lost our ball movement and uh, and and yeah, some of our capabilities forward of the footy. So yeah, I, I I'm with you, me. I think our our ability to move the ball is still our strength and has been probably for for quite a while uh we found a little bit more resilience behind the ball that that needs to improve and then I, I think the the thing that we absolutely need to get a lot better at is both the the opening of space when we've got the footy and then the closing down of space when we don't have it and that's not instinct yet and I also don't think we've got enough players who who have the capabilities to do it uh so we, we need to fix both of those problems if we can do that then I think we'll uh we'll improve uh, to Vince's question, uh, D's is still my tip for the flag, uh, mainly because <laughs> I do think that their defensive game, ironically, given what we just spoke about, does stack up. But uh, the Pies, if they if they get their hands off the footy, I, I think, you know, D's are my tip, but I think whoever wins the uh, that game this week are, are likely to go through and play Brisbane in the in the grand final. Um, yeah, you know, Brisbane. I expect will beat Port Adelaide. I don't think Port are quite ready yet, and um, and Brisbane will get two home finals and, and should find their way through to the grand final. Uh, but yeah, yeah Melbourne was going out in straight sets, mate. Yeah, yeah. Well, if they don't, if they don't beat Melbourne, then I I can see that happening. That's for sure. Uh, but I think the Carlton, one thing that we huge. can all agree on is as long as Carlton lose this week, then uh, yeah, I think <laughs> we've all got a reason to be happy. Yeah, I'm on the Melbourne train too, Vince. Um, who have you got? You asked the question. Lions, hear me. Lions, I think they've got it all. They've got, you know, so many different forward options. They've got they've got everything they need to win it. And they're just playing, um, you know, they've, they've come back from a, a lean patch and they've, they've played themselves back into form. Just yeah. think they're going to do it. Yeah, agreed. Agreed, mate. 
the lines are due. All right. Well, look, that's going to see us out tonight. Thanks so much to everyone who who came along and, and participated, asked questions. It was it was really good to get uh, not only your questions but also people jumping in with their their input. It's not you know we talk about this at the end of every show, but the thing that that makes doing this show uh, really special is, is the community, um, you guys obviously, but the wider community that we interact with and sharing sharing thoughts and ha- and having these discussions where, you know, it, it can be very easy to get shouty and, you know, misinterpret people on Twitter and, and in forums and things like that. But I think the great thing about this community that, that, that's been built is that we're very open to listening to, to other points of view and, and people's perspectives and, and really discussing that in a manner that that's not you know, over the top or not leading to people, you know, chucking the print, chucking the toys out of the cot or anything like that. So John and I both really want to thank um, everyone who's been here tonight and uh, all the listeners. So I'll just go through everyone who was in the chat. Not everyone spoke, but uh, Matt, uh, Watto, uh, Craig, uh, Crooksy, uh, Kingy, uh, Robert, uh, Watto and, and Vince there. So guys, thanks for coming along tonight, giving up a, an hour of your, your Wednesday night there. Um, yeah, really appreciate your time. Jono, any final words from you? No, thank, thanks to all our um, Patreons. Thanks to everyone who jumped on tonight. It, it still does spin me out that, uh, you know, people are prepared to support us uh, in any way, shape or form, let alone financially. I, I know, uh, yeah, there's a lot of people doing it tough. So the idea that people are, are happy to invest in us is, um, yeah, is not something that's lost on it, on either of us and we're, we're really grateful for it. So, yeah, thanks to everyone. And yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, let's hope this time next year we're we're talking about our own team going into a final series rather than eight others. Yeah. Well, look again. Thanks everyone tonight uh, for tonight. Um, as always, stay safe and go Dons. <laughs>